Welcome to Unfoldings, a podcast series connecting Melbourne and Vancouver dance artists in slow, deep, unblindly matched conversations. Imagined and curated by Angela Conquet as part of Dance in Vancouver 2021. This podcast is a partnership between Dance House Diary in Melbourne and the Dance Centre in Vancouver. These podcasts have been recorded on the unceded lands of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh Nations in Canada and those of the Kulin Nation in Australia. Yes, so I was graduating, so I did a um, Bachelor of uh, Fine Arts in Dance and um, I was graduating that so it was my final year in that bachelor's degree and I had a um, like a final work to present or to create that work ended up having quite the splash and um, in kind of Australian media Mm. and was quite caused caused some stirs so a lot of response was received from that work, which was very mm. interesting for me in a very complex time, I think, because it was it was just my graduation piece, you know, like it was right, just right. I was doing for school. Um, and, yeah, the work was called uh, Where We Stand and it came from a time where so I'm Indigenous, I'm of Ngāti Tukurehe and Te Atiawa descent, so I'm Māori, I'm Indigenous to New Zealand, living in Australia, so an Indigenous person but a settler here. Nevertheless, I was in this art school as one of very few Indigenous people and just generally black and brown people there were very few of us in that environment it was very eurocentric in nature and the kinds of things that we were learning were very eurocentric in nature and I was grappling with that experience at that time and what that meant for me Um, Mm -hmm. and so I think you know the work that I made was me grappling with that experience (laughs) Right. And essentially what I wanted to do was create a space within an environment that was not made for me or people like me, um, create an environment that did prioritise Indigenous people and Black and Brown people and people of colour that usually would not. And there were lots of discussions that happened among the the small group of people that I was working with about what that would mean and just because of the complexities and the depths of the history of that place and and what that institution is and means what we felt the only way that we felt that we could accomplish that in that space during my graduation season was to have a space that was solely for that community Mm. because we kind of preempted that the audiences who would come to the show would be predominantly white Mm. and we felt like even if we you know prioritized 
Indigenous people and people of colour and centred our stories or whatever, that it would become tokenised or be, you know, it couldn't truly be for us if it, we were performing our stories and, our, and exploring these things for a white audience. And so mm-hmm. that was kind of the troubleshooting that led to this separation of spaces. Right. So what we did was we had everyone arrive into a foyer and we did like an acknowledgement of country and then we invited um, firstly First Nations Indigenous people into the theatre space followed by other Indigenous and Black and Brown and people of colour identifying people into the theatre space and we had an environment in there where we could tell story and share and, you know, talk about various things in that space and then in the foyer space I was also working with a cohort of white performers and participants in this piece who we had created a second performance per se around discussing and addressing um, whiteness and colonialism and race relations and all of these things that truly in so many ways are the barriers that that mean that Indigenous people and people of colour can't comfortably coexist a lot of the time with white people who aren't engaged in these kinds of conversations and discourses and need to be. So, yeah, that secondary space was in the foyer so there was kind of a performance sort of spoken wordy kind of like getting people thinking and moving around these ideas and confronting things in the first iteration it kind of went something along the lines of now that we've you know had had this dialogue if you feel that you would like to and feel comfortable to enter into this space you are welcome to we're not going to stop Mm. you and on the way into that secondary space we had kind of like an interim space between the foyer and the theater where people would write their names we had a big piece of paper roll of paper that wrote, uh, wrote I acknowledge where I stand and it was kind of about positionality and place and things like that and so everybody who entered the theatre would write their names on that sheet in acknowledgement of that thing so it was kind of like rite of passage kind of mm-hmm. um, and, yeah, so and it, was, um, it sounds like their body was called like you, you gave them a task that they could yeah. do and that mm-hmm. yeah yeah so anyone could then at that point go into the second space how would you tell if someone was white or not you know I, I guess so we spoke um, to uh, we basically the language was all it was very considered language so when in the initial stages of the performance where we were inviting people into the theater it was uh, people who identify as first nations people are uh, invited to enter the space there was no questioning. There was no, you know, obviously I'm a white passing Indigenous person mm-hmm. and, you know, like typecasting people is definitely not what I'm about. <laughs> but when you, you talk about this project, yeah, it com- what comes up for me is 
and something I, I think about often around my own body is, is yeah, the gaze on my body, like the white gaze mm. on my body, which is kind of just feels like I've, I've always performed for the white gaze, even when there weren't a lot of white people where I grew up. You know, I grew up in Malaysia. Mm. And, and I'm ethnically Chinese. But of course, Malaysia is also organized around white supremacy, <laughs> being an, an ex-colony and, and, you know, all the systems are still at play. And so for a large part of my life, and, and you know, all that is internalized, you know, you, you, you just, it takes such a long time to undo that. And, and I'm always, I think what I find in myself is it becomes habitual, the, the, the performance for the white gaze. Mm. It's almost like I don't know how to be other than for the white gaze or for the white ear or, you know. So I, I love the idea of creating a space where you, you're free from that gaze and, and what, what is it like to feel Oh, yourself, where you stand, or you know yourself in the mm. world, when when you don't have that um, tension on your skin, mm. on your breath. Mm. Mm. Were you so you were raised in Malaysia? Yeah, I lived there till I was about twenty. Mm. I started. Uh, I, I started in in children's theater. When yeah. I was about 15 or 16, I um, started doing children's theater with a woman called Janet Pillay, who mm. is known now in the region for cultural mapping, like a lot of her work in cultural mapping and working with youth. So now mm. she, she, she doesn't make theater anymore, but, you know, she, she works with youth to kind of go out in the community and, and gather stories. So, so... But at that time, in the mid-80s, early 80s, I guess, mid-80s, yeah, her experiment was working with young people from, I think, anywhere from the age of 7 to, you know, 16, 17. Mm. And through that experience, I met my first dance teacher and, you know, kind of a cohort of um, mentors and teachers. And these were teachers who were basically grappling with, you know, political questions about what it means to be Malaysian. I think mm -hmm. we all took very seriously the, the notion of, uh, yeah, what does it mean to build this post-colonial society? Mm. How do we make theater or how do we express ourselves, you know, after colonialism <laughs> um, or you know, the continuation of colonialism in, in a different form, actually, is um, what's happened. Mm. <clears throat> so, so I think those questions were always, you know, my my um, my introduction to performance yeah, was is. already kind of politicized in that, in that way. Yeah, yeah. And then I left Malaysia to go to France to study dance. Because I saw this man was called Larry Leong dance, and there was something about see because up to that point, the the you know my teachers were mostly Indian, <laughs> they were you know ethnically Indian, and and the forms I was sort of um, 
encountering like the traditional forms of Malay. Mm. And me, feel, as an ethnic Chinese, I, I think there was a lot of kind of self-loathing, uh, you know, this internalized racism uh, about, mm. you know, I, 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 I had ideas that, you know, Chinese culture was uh, uh, not very <laughs> refined, you know, you know the, the, all yeah. these stereotypes of, of Chinese people were, well, they're present in my body. Mm. And so when I saw Larry Leong perform, he was ethnically Chinese, he was Malaysian, and he had been living in Paris for like 15 years. There was a kind of like, whoa. <laughs> it's, uh, there was something in a way he was moving that kind of woke something up in me that went, oh, that, uh, uh, you know, these are words that I use now as an older person. But a kind of, oh, there's a path to kind of loving myself, you know, in, yeah. in a whole way. Through dancing, like, uh, or, or, or through making, making mm. dance. But, you know, I was in Europe and, and while I was there, I, I encountered, of course, this kind of, uh, this exotification of my Asian body. I had very long hair and, um, there was this, this very uncomfortable tension I felt of the the pull to sexualize myself and then the yeah. the rage that came up uh, when I felt myself mm-hmm. doing that and, and just this impossibility of that. So I think I've always just, it just feels I've been always grappling with like, ah, what does it mean to even feel my body, you know, like... Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I relate to that, I don't, the way that I would describe like almost that outlier experience of kind of being, I, I remember feeling when I was at, when I was at uni, just like I didn't, my body was different to everybody else's my the way that I instinctually wanted to move was different ballet felt very foreign like it felt very hard (laughs) to put into (laughs) my body (laughs) which I'm I'm pretty sure I feel like that's it's hard for everybody but it was you know it just felt very wrong I would actually say and um I remember uh, you know, hearing you talk about this artist that you went to to France to um, engage with, uh, connected with some Maori, other Maori dancers and artists, um, Victoria Hunt and Charles Kuruneho and artists like these, um, Jara Wasasala, who's Fijian. Mm-hmm. And I think engaging with those artists and seeing them move and working with them was kind of the first time that I felt that feeling you're talking about of uh, this is a pathway to loving myself. This is a pathway to like honestly moving with the body that I have rather than uh-huh. almost like attempting to to have a, a different body or something. Like I felt like there were, there were times where I was dancing for others in a way that my body 
didn't have that kind of core impetus to move that way. It mm. felt like I was moving from outside of myself rather than mm. from inside of myself. And that changed quite a bit working with those artists. And Yeah. I think we, sometimes we, we don't realise how much how much of our bodies don't get invited into spaces mm. and and when when there isn't a call for that we we don't feel into those parts of our bodies you know mm. when, when, like the, the the questions aren't asked for, for those parts of us mm. so yeah the feeling of of seeing someone have a kind of vibration where you go, oh, that's possible. Yeah. And this, this to for me to answer that question means I can feel into mm. into these parts of me. And I'm curious about your impulse to move and and where you remember it from, or mm. like how come you had it intact in you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my introduction to dance was through cultural dances and then just kind of dancing around at home but using the bones of what I was being taught. And a lot of that was very undulating, you know, circular from the hips, from the centre and everything moves and circles and spirals and like is grounded and mm. kind of has like roots into the the earth. And I think I think after that level of everything, everything moves and everything undulates and circles and twists and you know moves in all of these different ways to then go to such controlled action mm. was quite like an oppressive feeling actually on my body after. Yeah. And so I think I had quite like an extreme reaction bodily. Mm. Um, like, what, what is this? <laughs> it's painful. Yeah. yeah. The, 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 uh, yeah. When, when I just listening to you, the thought that came up to me was, yeah, what is knowledge that's known through moving mm. as opposed to knowledge that's known through fixing? Mm. Mm. And I, I guess for me, my in to that kind of whole body movement has been through martial arts. That was mm. my... Because Chinese culture is also a, a very, form, you know, there's a long history of, of formal and colonial, you know, like within Chinese culture, that there's, there's colonialism too. Mm. There's the sort of classical Chinese culture that is, you know, a dominant culture kind of doing all the same things, I suppose, that, that ballet does. And then, of course, it has borrowed a lot from from classical ballet like European classical ballet mm. um, and, and that body is super gendered also mm. but um, my way into claiming I suppose my 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 whole body was through martial arts and there is this yeah every, everything's moving the 
and that this Taoist, this Taoist idea of everything is in flux and mm. and 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 you're just you're trying to ride the flux, you know, as smoothly <laughs> as possible. Mm. Mm. But I kind of feel like a lot of my questions or just my scores come out of my practice of martial arts. I, I held on to martial arts, I suppose, as a way to not get lost in the white world of dance. <laughs> yeah. As a way to... Yeah, maybe as a way to have, yeah, a space where the gaze on me was a different gaze. Mm, yeah. I, um, for the past, it'd be going on maybe a year and a half now, have been practicing um, a Maori martial art. It's called Modako. Um, mm. Is that what oh, Yes. So I've been. I've been training in that now for about a year and a half quite heavily and very much, I think because it's still early days for me submitting to the form. Mm. (laughs) Um, And I also find that that's a space for me to um, not only be existing outside of that gaze, but, uh, it's almost like it completely has nothing to do with it at all. Like it's my my training in and my practice and my involvement in this community because it is a, a significantly sized Maori community that are involved in this practice mm. in in Nam in Melbourne is its center is entirely in Teo Maori and, and the the world and practice and worldviews and values of Māori and and you are trained in the language so you know they do all of the calls and they speak to you almost entirely in Māori the entire time. Mm. I'm not fluent at all but the practice of being in that space is kind of just through osmosis building my um, Mm my language skills and I really believe in the uh, importance of, of of sound and how they affect our bodies like the sound spaces we hear mm. and I think it's it's um even if we don't understand or if we're not completely fluent but to be as my therapist says like in your milk tongue space does something to your body and I think mm. that too is super important I think that, that actually this this during this pandemic that's been one of the big big shifts in my own body because about a year slightly more than a year ago I met uh, I have a pandemic pal meaning <laughs> someone I I met long this uh, you know I I've never actually met him but but over the last year and a bit we've become very good friends um, he's American but he's um, his parents are Taiwanese and so. We speak, you know, my mother tongue is Hokkien, which is a variation of, and Taiwanese is a variation of uh, Hokkien. 
and and we're both dancers. We're, we're both teachers, and we're both you know we 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 make dances. And I had this experience of oh my god, I've met myself, but you know in, in boy form, and <laughs> and he lives in Paris. But somewhere along the line, also was like oh we speak, you know you also speak Hokkien. Um, and we kind of speak Hokkien the same amount of that, you know. Like I, I feel like yeah. I, I, I speak the at a level of a child, and 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 then I grew up, you know, in English and French, and it feels like my intellectual life and my emotional life was mostly in, in these colonial languages. Mm. So I I couldn't talk to you about my work in Hokkien, but you know I can ask for food and things like this. Mm. Um, and and same with uh this. And Sherwood. So the feeling of speaking or hearing or being in that that language space, you know, those sound space in your body and being seen, like that the things I did, like my intellectual life, the the way I thought, how I felt about things were also mm-hmm. seen. Um while I was in that space, did something incredible to my body. Like I suddenly felt my belly, like move underneath my heart and my head, and I mm. felt this kind of alignment that I had been longing for, you know, uh, all my life. So yeah, I I, I hear you in that. Um, yeah, mm. that's a beautiful reorientation. To be able to, you know, have that experience that just really, yeah, realigns your highest mm-hmm. sense of being through through a language. Did you speak Maori with your grandmother or? Not with my grandmother, no. So my grandmother was back home. So I was born and raised in Australia, and she is. She was always in Aotearoa in New Zealand, and because the the generations that were that lost their language that were not allowed to speak are quite close. Like that happened. To her and to my father, even he's now in his seventies, so he he's a bit um, he's in that generation that wasn't really allowed to speak. So his first language was Maori, and he spoke it with his grandmother. But he, yeah, from from kind of maybe five or so, wasn't allowed to speak anymore. So he was kind of that last generation for our family that spoke.、Mm. And he he doesn't he still doesn't have language fluent to this day because of that experience and I think it's very you know there's a lot of trauma around that for a lot of people、mm-hmm. in my family and outside of my family he taught me my pepeha which is like my when you meet someone else who's Maori you introduce yourself with this this thing called a pepeha which Articulates where you come from, who your tribe is,、mm. what your ancestral mountain is, and the canoe that your people came to Aotearoa on, and kind of gives like a genealogical map、mm-hmm. of who you are. So my dad taught me that because he 
stressed that it was really important for me to know who I am and where I come from and to be able to introduce myself to other people so that I always have a place, you know, like I can place myself. Yeah, it's it's very interesting just these the pathways to finding these things, not only, I mean, hearing your story of it is very interesting to me as well, not only having experienced genocide on language but then being diaspora and having that kind of dislocation as well that separates you from connection to language. Yeah, and I guess because there's always been that part of me as a young person that felt like if I had just grown up at home, <laughs> you know, like it would have been different. And then and then growing up and going back home more and, you know, connecting with my cousins who only one out of the many, many that I have I, who I know of speaks fluently in Māori. Yeah, only one. And um, going back, you know, I had this experience where I went back to my marae, which was like our tribal grounds kind of, like a community community house. Mm. I had this experience going back there a couple of years ago and, you know, seeing my aunties and my cousins and um, there was this moment where we all had to go around the room and introduce ourselves to each other because there were guests present and people would get up and speak in whatever amount of language they had. And it got around to me and I was kind of towards the end and I spoke and I introduced myself and I spoke for maybe uh, five minutes in my language and afterwards you know because growing up in Australia I've always had this thing of like oh you know there's so much that I don't know and there's so much Mm. that I don't have access to and this that and the other and then going home and standing on my ancestral lands and introducing myself and speaking my tongue and then talking to my auntie afterwards and she was like she basically said to me that well she asked me where I learned to speak like that and Mm was really quite impressed and and thought and was like wow you you speak really beautifully and really quite fluently and she was like you speak more fluently than I do (laughs) and it was kind of a moment for me of reorientation of how I was thinking about myself being so I think I had always seen myself as quite outside of something living away from home and in that moment, it was this kind of distance doesn't necessarily reflect proximity or something like that. Mm-hmm. Do you think? Do you think she had considered you to be on the outside, or was that something you? That was a story you carried. She had always seen you as part of the community, maybe. Or... Yeah, I definitely. I think that that is the way in general. You get raised to know that home is home that is my tūranga wai wai like for all of us who are ancestrally connected to those lands that is our place so that is our center and absolutely she saw she always saw that i think i i carried this idea that i was this i didn't belong to them to my family mm. and over the years it's more 
recently, I think this realization, oh, they've always been there for me. I, mm. I just needed to reorient myself to them. I see that in my son, for example. Um, you know, my son is half white and half um, mm. me. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, I asked him some time ago, I said, like, do you, how Chinese do you feel? You know, like how, how much, how much do you feel like it? Like, do you, do you consider yourself part of the, the Chinese diaspora? And, mm. and he said, no, he said, no. And that, left me with a little pang Hmm. but but i kind of feel like that's probably his own journey to figure that out and and his experience of being a biracial person is going to be so different from my experience and from his father's experience and that's Hmm. his someone was telling me how you know like the creolization of a language happens when the descendants of the original speakers start to speak to each other like that's when a new language happens, and and one of the things I I remember, you know, like um, so I speak Hokkien, but I, number one, like just within the many Chinese languages, I you know I grew up thinking that Hokkien is just a dialect, a very ugly dialect. You know, no one wants to hear Hokkien. It's like really crude and rough. And if you were properly Chinese, you would speak Mandarin. Mm. And um and so already there was that kind of for me this feeling of oh I I, I don't belong to you know I, I'm not properly Chinese enough and then when I would meet other sort of Hokkien speakers from you know from China or from Taiwan I would always feel like oh my Hokkien is not good enough or not serious enough or that my Hokkien is so corrupted by you know, because I'm Malaysian, so there are a lot of loan words from other languages like Malay or Tamil, and you know, I, I don't even know anymore. You know, when I speak Hokkien, like if this is like a pure Hokkien word, or it's been, mm. you know, it's another word that's been, and so I, I was always really self-conscious. But recently, you know, like I kind of went, no, wait a minute, like the the Hokkien that I speak in Malaysia or in Southeast Asia, the 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 words that I use the my accent, it, it's a kind of land acknowledgement, right? Like I, I'm Chinese, but I have, I grew up in Southeast Asia. Like, like the, for me, the, the, the smells of Southeast Asia, the, the food, the, the, that, that's a very specific iteration of my experience as an ethnically Chinese person. That's very different from someone from mainland China or mm. from Taiwan or Hong Kong, right? So, so there's, there's something about that. The sound, the, the sound that you make, and the sound you make is, is shape that your body makes or moves, you know, it, it's like all these, the way your, your tongue and your vocal tract organizes to make that sound and, and how you breathe. Mm. All those things carry, like your accent, like they carry also the place that you stand on. And, and for me, the, the, this whole piece about the homes that we carry ancestrally and this community that we have, you know, like through time to uh, our ancestors, to our family, our, uh, you know, our grandparents and, and to the sense of belonging to where we are now. Like, how do we build that? And I guess that's what I, I, I uh, that's my, my big question 
as a dancer or as a choreographer. It's like, how do I make belonging here mm. in a way that is um, generative, you know? And for me, it's it's like, how do I have conversations with Indigenous people that are not mediated by by whiteness? Mm. How do I get rid of that gaze or, you know, be free somehow? I feel like this term community is also used quite frivolously, you know, to even understand or comprehend what it might be to have relationships with people rather than, you know, I think especially politically right now, at least here, it's quite correct to have relationships with Indigenous people, but it's, you know, It can also be really extractive. Yeah, exactly. And people people pay to have these relations, you know, and like, you know, have meetings and, and of course, like, as it should be, you know, if you're seeking information and things like that. But, you know, as an Indigenous person myself from another place to only, if I put myself in those shoes, if I was at home and to only be engaged in through this lens of, oh, well, I should know you because it's the right thing to do. Not because I actually want to know you, but because you have connect, you know, like just this kind mm. of very politicised and, and in that way, kind of dehumanized way of engaging with humans that, yeah, it like it kind of removes any sense of like actual interpersonal relationship. Yeah. Because that is, in my experience, so often how, at least in institutional spaces and through whiteness, that is kind of, that is the type of relationship that is advertised. I suppose to have with mm-hmm. with indigenous peoples with communities of color with any sort of marginalized or oppressed peoples it's all it all it kind of has that twist to it and I think like the the little piece of of relate of true relationships and you know growth and and sense of belonging that I've been able to connect into in the years that I've lived in this place that I'm currently in, which is Wurundjeri country, mm-hmm. is very slow, very kind, patient work in my experience thus far. Like it, it's, I feel like in in the yeah, the there is a certain type of relationship and way of engaging that is advertised quite often I believe and then but realistically for me it's just you know like having a conversation with somebody mm-hmm. yeah what I've been interested in is around you know the awareness of danger right now in the world you know not just from mm-hmm. the virus but yeah just everything <laughs> how do we create spaces that where we can feel safe for a moment and then rejuvenate like find strength again so that we can go back out and you know and and i feel like those these old technologies of dancing and singing are vital in that Mm. project of for us to like rest but you know rest in a way that uh is going to strengthen us Mm. for the next fight (laughs) yeah absolutely
and then maybe as an artist, you know, as a an artist who works with your body, you know, as dancers, like I think that's the patience we can learn to have. It's like we hold, we hold this technology, right? We we hold the the knowledge of of how to move and and relate to one another in this way, mm. and you know, in in terms of the our relationship to COVID or, or the state of the world, or the the danger, or, or like I I feel like that's what we have to like practice also this patience of that this knowledge is important and mm. we hold it. Thank you for listening to Unfoldings, a podcast series bringing together dance artists from Melbourne and Vancouver. If you enjoyed this conversation, please check out all five episodes of this podcast series and spread the word. Unfoldings is a collaboration between Dance House Diary in Melbourne and the Dance Centre in Vancouver, with support from the Canadian Consulate in Sydney, Australia, Australia Council for the Arts, and Dance House Melbourne.